1: There's a challenger to Gettysburg for the greatest battle in Pennsylvania's history. It's not a fight that involves soldiers and muskets, but one that has waged for decades between two convenience store chains. In central and western Pennsylvania, Sheets is king. Amid the store's technicolor interior, its disciples swear by mac and cheese bites, boom-boom sauce, and an exotic list of frozen slushies. Wawa rules over the area around Philadelphia and the east of the state. Aesthetically, it's a more muted affair, and it's famous for shorty hoagies and sizzlies, various forms of sandwiches, to the uninitiated. Pennsylvanians from either side of the state will swear to the supremacy of their local store in much the same way they would over their chosen sports team. Last year, a local news organisation tried to settle the dispute by hosting an online debate, Arguing for Team Sheets against a congressman from Philly was Lieutenant Governor and Western PA resident John Fetterman. He's now fighting a different battle for a seat in the US Senate. Fetterman is the Democratic candidate taking on celebrity physician and Republican Dr Mehmet Oz in the midterm elections. With 94 days to go, I'm John Prudhoe, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's the secret to electoral success in Pennsylvania? We're checking back in on the race for Pennsylvania's open Senate seat, For now, the campaign is largely happening online, with John Fetterman staying off the campaign trail due to a health scare and Dr Oz failing to take advantage of the open lane. But away from the memes and internet stunts, what do voters actually want? We take a trip to the Keystone State to find out what lessons past elections can tell us about how to win the heads and hearts of voters there, what might sway them this time and what that tells us about the national picture. With me this week to talk about Pennsylvania and to look ahead to the midterms, which are now less than 100 days away, are Idris and John. Idris, we're mainly going to be focused on Pennsylvania this week, but you're in Arizona, I think. And I have to say that your report from that state's primaries kind of spoiled my breakfast this morning. Yeah,
2: I've actually just as of yesterday arrived in Dallas, Texas, where I'm going to see Victor Orban speak at CPAC. So it's a real dive into the right wing for me this week. Yeah, Arizona's got a lot going on. It's, it's, it's always been this hotbed of kind of paranoid style of right wing politics, starting from Barry Goldwater and going on to, you know, even some state politicians who many people haven't heard of. But now what we saw on Tuesday night was that in the elections there, the Trump approved slate basically swept to power. And that's, you know, the results are being confirmed now, but probably the governor, secretary of state and attorney general, that Republicans have put forward are all people who believe that the election was stolen. And if they win their general election would be people who could certify or not certify the 2024 presidential election. So, uh, you know, it's a pretty bracing result, I think.
3: Yeah, this is not good. And John, where are you at the moment? And what have you been up to? I am in Miami, Florida, which, as you know, is very close to the United States. I'm reporting the opening episode to the Intelligence's midterm series which begins next Wednesday. Well, we thought it would be really interesting as
1: these midterms unfold to check in from time to time on Pennsylvania, where there's a particularly competitive race, really important open Senate seat there. John Fazman, could you just give us a quick update
3: about what's been going on in Pennsylvania since we last checked in? So the Pennsylvania Senate race is between, on the Republican side, Mehmet Oz. He is a Turkish-American doctor. He became famous for going on Oprah Winfrey's TV show, and then he had his own TV show. In the primary, he narrowly edged out David McCormick, who is sort of a lab-grown Republican. He went to West Point. He has a Princeton PhD. He's a hedge funder. He's married to an official in the Trump administration. Dr. Oz beat him by about one-tenth of one percentage point. And then on the Democratic side, you have John Fetterman, very distinctive looking, six-foot-eight, shaved head, goatee, always wears a hoodie and shorts. He is the current Lieutenant Governor. Before that, he was mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, which is a distressed steel town. He was there for 14 years. A couple of days before Pennsylvania's primary, he suffered a stroke and has been more or less off the campaign trail ever since.
1: And Idris, what's at stake here is the control of the Senate. Republicans need to pick up a few seats in order to wrest back control of that chamber and make Mitch McConnell the majority leader yet again. Can you walk us through the electoral math of that and why Pennsylvania matters?
2: Yeah, it's a 50-50 Senate right now. So Republicans need to pick up one seat on net in order to get back control so Pennsylvania, this, this open Senate seat is to replace Senator Pat Toomey, who's a Republican who's retiring. It is one of the Democrats' best pickup opportunities that they have available to them. And so the idea is that if they are able to pick up one seat, then they will possibly be able to
1: compensate for a loss somewhere else. Got it. Okay, thank you. To get a sense of how the race stands today, I called up John Meisek, who's editor-in-chief of the Pennsylvania Capital Star and a friend of the podcast. A recent poll from Fox News has John Fetterman 11 points up on Mehmet Oz. Does this, I asked, now make him the favourite?
4: A poll in July is not the same as a poll in uh, September, October. But I mean, things certainly seem to be going Fetterman's way right now. Uh, the momentum is on his side the fundraising continues to be on his side he remains a prodigious fundraiser and is and has been out there doing it. And, and even while again while recovering from a stroke continued to raise money he has even though he's been off the campaign trail he's not been out of voters uh, inboxes or out of their social media feeds.
1: John can you help me unravel something that's puzzling me so If you look at this race from a distance, you see the overall environment is pretty poor for Democrats, right? It's a midterm where the Democrats hold the White House. Those are typically pretty disastrous for the party that holds the White House. You've got inflation high, which plenty of people are worried about. This ought to be a terrible environment to be running in as a Democrat. I mean, is the fact that Fetterman seems to be doing okay with all the caveats you add about polling in in July or August – does that suggest that actually the identity of the candidates matters a huge amount because there's a quite a lot of political science that tends to slightly skate over you know who the candidate actually is in favor of these more sort of macro environment factors. I mean, is this race just showing us so far that actually the the nominee really really matters?
4: I mean, I think in this campaign, John, more than any other, this is really a personality driven campaign. I mean both Fetterman and Oz are kind of identical. Candidates, as far as policy stances go, they stand on things where you would expect them to stand as as candidates. So, I mean, I think given that a lot of that is their own image, a lot of that is voters sort of perceptions of them as well. And it's also Pennsylvania, which remains, despite the fact that things are horrible for Democrats nationally or should be horrible for Democrats nationally, remains a pretty reliably bluish to um, to purple state.
1: When we spoke before, you made the point that he was less likely to go down well with conservative Republicans, and that should have hurt him in the primary in the event he squeaked through. But that same positioning ought to mean that he's more appealing to swing voters in Pennsylvania, people who might cross over. And also the fact that he has this huge celebrity and is very good on television seemed to make him in some ways rather a strong candidate. Actually, that looks like it's not the case, right?
4: Yeah, I I think the other thing you you can't get past is Pennsylvanians don't like carpetbaggers. I I mean, I sort of can't reinforce that enough. Fetterman has been hammering him relentlessly Mm. on his New Jersey residence, And he's brought up the stuff that he doesn't know about Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvanians are, I hesitate to use the word provincial, because that's not the right word. But I mean, they're pretty hometown proud. And I don't think they like it when some out of towner comes in and thinks, well, give me your vote.
1: And I guess Fetterman's so strongly associated with a particular place in Pennsylvania that he's well placed to run that sort of attack.
4: Exactly right. I mean, th- again, despite coming from sort of a posh background with his parents supporting him well into his forties, Fetterman has carved out this image of the the hard scrabble mayor of the hard scrabble steel town in western Pennsylvania and, and that image has really resonated.
1: John, I wanted to ask about the governor's race, because that is an extraordinary one and a very important, you know, potentially hugely consequential one. The Democrats ran this strategy, which seems very irresponsible to me, at least, of boosting Doug Mastriano, who's a stop the steal candidate. He won the nomination. How is that looking?
4: So this is the race between Doug Mastriano, Republican state senator from Franklin County, who was at the U.S. Capitol on January the 6th, but claims he never entered the building, though video is shown perhaps closer to the building than he's initially let on. He's hardline anti-abortion, exception free. He's facing the Democratic Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, who uh, hails from Montgomery County down in the Philadelphia suburbs. He's been a tough on crime, but also sort of a progressive prosecutor in a lot of ways, a down the line supporter of abortion rights, has sort of towed the line between responsible uh, natural gas development and fighting climate change. So in a lot of ways, he is he's the inheritor to Governor Tom Wolf, whom he seeks to replace. We've now seen at least two polls where Shapiro has pulled away. And that Fox News poll we were talking about at the top of our conversation here also has him up by double digit. I mean, I don't think anyone expects this to be a double-digit race by Election Day. I've been proven to be wrong on those things before. But again, this is one of those things where, you know, I think Pennsylvania voters are are looking at a very binary choice between Mastriano and Shapiro.
1: Can you shed any light on what voters have in their minds as they're trying to weigh up these decisions? I mean, I think it's something that analysts and pollsters always try and oversimplify a bit, say, oh, they're really worried about inflation, and that's the thing, or they're really worried about culture issues or, or abortion, and normally it's a mixture of all these things plus macro environment, plus the candidates. But from sort of rootling around in the data so far and from talking to people in Pennsylvania, what like, can you shed on how the elections in November sort of will or won't be different from from previous cycles that you've seen?
4: The race for governor as, you know, when the US Supreme Court handed down its decision in Dobbs, abortion left to the front of the queue there and became one of the, you know, it was already going to be a defining issue for the campaign, but became even more so of one. After that decision was handed down. I mean, if you if you dig into the polling, you know, jobs, the economy are, you know, are sort of inflation are at the top of voters' priorities list. We've seen a couple. Now there's a Monmouth University poll where that was at the top of the list. You know, you look at sort of those right track, wrong track questions, which sort of indicate the overall mood of the electorate. And you know, there there is concern and worry about the future. There's concern about making bills. There's concern about being able to afford food, that kind of stuff. I mean, thankfully, we've seen gas prices kind of settle down over these last couple of weeks. I'll be curious to see what happens with new numbers after that. But, you know, a lot of these traditional bread and butter issues, I mean, as much as we talk about kind of the culture war stuff and the headline grabbing stuff, I mean, the sort of really practical concerns that hit voters where they live, those continue to kind of be the tent poles for the uh, for the campaigns.
1: John, this race for the Senate in Pennsylvania is a very consequential one. The campaign
3: is pretty weird, isn't it? It's an odd campaign. Yeah, you'd think that in the summer months before a very consequential election, the two candidates would just be blanketing the state. And that hasn't happened. John Fetterman has largely been off the campaign trail since, I think, June, because he had a stroke. Dr. Oz has been popping up here and there. But the campaign seems to be being waged mainly online through sort of snarky memes. So John Fetterman, for instance, launched a petition to get Dr. Oz into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. That's a reference to his living in New Jersey and only having moved to Pennsylvania. Kind of technically, he's using his in-law's house as his registered address and paying rent there, but he still has a home in New Jersey. Dr. Oz has been doing everything he can to link John Fetterman online to Bernie Sanders. He's also repeatedly hit him for being off the campaign trail, which seems to me perhaps a bit cruel. What I wonder about this is whether it's a possible look at future campaigns. I mean, as more and more engaged voters are engaged online, as races become nationalized, perhaps this sort of meme war is going to become increasingly important. I wonder what the risks and and benefits are of running this sort of online-centric campaign. I assume it's something that candidates will do in the future. I think the risk is that it becomes, is that they pay too little attention to, to local issues, too little attention to personal appearances. Idris, one of the questions in this year's primaries on the Republican
1: side has been about the extent of Donald Trump's influence, right? There have been some candidates who he's endorsed who've lost. And so some analysts have looked at that and said, oh, actually, you know, the Trump endorsement is not as powerful as it seemed. We've got a bit more data now, including the primaries from this week. So how does the answer to that question look now? You know, how powerful is Donald Trump's endorsement? How secure is his hold on the Republican Party?
2: I think his endorsement is incredibly powerful. And more importantly, every Republican who seems to be running thinks that as well. Donald Trump, I think, had a big setback in Georgia, where he tried to primary two sitting incumbents who had defied him and not stolen the election on his behalf. And when that failed, I think people thought that that perhaps his hold was loosening on the party. But what we've seen from Arizona this week is that in open seats, his nominees all won, including some people who didn't have prior political experience. And that's also true in in some prominent Senate races. So in Ohio, J.D. Vance, who secured the president's nomination, won his Senate primary. Oz won his Senate primary in Pennsylvania. Herschel Walker, who secured the president's nomination, is running in Georgia. Now, what these people all have in common, aside from Trump's endorsement, is none of them have prior political experience. This is their first campaign. And All of them are underperforming what you would expect a generic Congressional Republican to be doing at this point in the race. And so there's a real question of whether or not these candidates will actually be the best ones, you know, and and, and another point is that another way that Trump might influence these midterms is if he declares early. Democrats would really love to run against Donald Trump again, and they would really not like to run on defending their economic record and handling of inflation. So Donald Trump essentially gave the Democrats the Senate majority in 2020 when he flubbed the Georgia Senate runoffs, which you might remember many, many, feels like eons ago. <laughs> it does, yeah. But, you know, he could well give the Democrats a Senate majority in 2022 again, especially if some of these candidates who turn out to not be so great actually lose. Um, you know, Oz, for example, I think, I, I think that McCormick, who, like John said, was grown in a lab I think he would have had a much better chance of beating Fetterman despite similar carpetbagging concerns. And, you know, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, Fetterman hasn't been campaigning and he's really kind of hidden himself from the media as well. These last few weeks should have been an opportunity for Oz to really hammer him and, and subtly make the point that he's not fit for office. But Oz seems to be on vacation. I think I was reading in Florida. He's, he's in Europe. I mean, he's really missing the opportunity here such that it's also been reported the Senate Republicans are looking at Other routes to securing a majority are almost riding
1: off uh, Pennsylvania a bit early. Okay, we'll go back to a sea change moment in Pennsylvania's electoral math in a moment. But first, the usual reminder we would love it if you'd become an Economist subscriber if you're not one already. With a subscription, you can read, listen to, and watch everything we make. So, us USPod is the link to subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. You'll find that in the notes for this episode.
5: Look at that guy over there!
1: Midway through the rally, Donald Trump's attention was drawn to something in the crowd. A toddler had been lifted above his dad's head. He wore a dark suit, white shirt and Trump-Pence pin. His strawberry blonde hair was parted far to one side and swept back awkwardly over his head in a familiar comb-over. Bring him up! The crowd, already enthralled to the Republican presidential nominee, cheered even louder as the Trump mini-me made his way, via his father's shoulders and the arms of a security guard, onto the stage.
5: Now, he's supposed to look like Donald Trump, but he's actually much too good-looking. You are really handsome.
1: The future president planted a kiss on the toddler's cheek.
5: Where's your daddy? And your mommy, right? Do you want to go back to them, or do you want to stay with Donald Trump?
1: It was just under a month until the 2016 election and the arena in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania was packed with adoring fans as Donald Trump hit the final straight of the campaign. But the rally was being held in a democratic stronghold. What a beautiful boy.
6: Welcome to Luzerne County where you and your family will enjoy four exciting seasons of fun.
1: Luzerne is a county of peaks and troughs, dissected by the Susquehanna River. Urban centers like Wilkes-Barre, the county seat, sit on the water's edge, and to either side, the tree-topped Appalachian mountains are dotted with the scars of old anthracite coal mines.
5: My name is Bill O'Boyle. I've lived in Luzerne County all my life. Grew up here, went to school here, Uh, worked here all my life. I have traveled, but uh, I've always uh, remained here. Love this area.
1: Bill O'Boyle is a staff writer and columnist for local paper The Times' Leader. He remembers those 2016 rallies.
5: Trump filled our arena here on two separate occasions in that campaign with more than 11,000 people each time. People just clamoring to get in and people that I saw and knew, who I knew were Democrats, who were there getting signs and shirts and hats and, and supporting Trump.
1: This area used to be coal country.
5: It is a very proud heritage. It's, it's something that this area was built on, and uh, a lot of people worked in that industry for many, many years, and it was a very difficult place to work in the mines, but uh, that's all in the past.
1: It's a well-trodden narrative. America's old industrial heartlands, which the union vote kept reliably democratic, felt increasingly left behind after manufacturing declined. And then, in 2016, Along came Donald Trump, a politician who they felt understood them.
5: And in this area, issues like pro-life, pro-gun, pro-jobs coming here, you know, from bringing back from overseas, this America first thing uh, that people really said it's enough helping everybody else in the world. How about helping us first and then worry about everybody else?
1: This could apply to many places in the Rust Belt that went Republican in 2016 and handed Donald Trump the presidency. Mike Buffer covers politics for the Citizen's Voice newspaper.
7: He kind of taps into a kind of like a white grievance message that that appeals to the white working class. And that's a lot of the base here.
1: He's a relative newcomer to the county. He moved there from Philadelphia in 2005. And he says there were factors particular to Luzerne too.
7: Uh, Hazleton is a city in the southern part of Luzerne County and Hazleton has a growing... Latino population and uh, some of the older residents in the area have been resentful about that. Trump's positions on immigration and and building a wall along the Mexican border boosted his popularity in the county in 2016, particularly in the Hazleton area.
1: Not since George Bush in 1988 had Luzerne County voted for a Republican presidential candidate. In 2016, it was one of only three Pennsylvanian counties that broke for Trump, having voted twice for Barack Obama, helping to give the Republican the crucial swing state and the election. The message that he was one of them worked.
5: I went to school in Pennsylvania. They've taken our jobs out of Pennsylvania. We're going to be bringing them back, folks, believe me. In 2020,
1: Luzerne County again voted for Donald Trump. But not by enough. Joe Biden, whose hometown of Scranton is in the neighbouring county, ate into his lead. Trump needed to do better in the rural and Rust Belt areas that had handed him victory four years earlier to counter the democratic surge in suburban areas.
7: I have a sense that Fetterman will do fairly well. Mike Buffer again. Now, I I won't say he'll win Luzerne County, but I think his everyday appeal will do well. Dr Oz won Luzerne
1: in the primary, one of his strongest showings in the state. Despite Fetterman's man-of-the-people shtick, in Trump country, the former president's backing and the area's rightward turn will likely be enough to help the celebrity doctor over the line in November, in this county at least. Democrats can afford to lose Luzerne. The challenge will be to replicate, or better, Joe Biden's 2020 performance in a far less favourable environment. Idris, because this election will partly be decided in Rust Belty and left behind America-ish. That just got me thinking a little bit about that whole narrative, which was so dominant after 2016 as an explanation for how Donald Trump had done so well. But I think it's out of date for a couple of reasons, really. I mean, A, unemployment in America is so low at the moment that a lot of places that we might once have thought of as being left behind are actually doing much better than they were. Wage growth at the lower end of the labour market has been really hot. And actually, I think the whole left-behind story, which is really one of a very slow recovery from the financial crisis and of the China shock, it was really actually going out of date already in 2016 when you saw wage growth for blue-collar jobs picking up fast. So I just wonder if it's time to... Not exactly bury this one, but place less emphasis on it. What Donald
2: Trump has done with white working class voters is a fairly incredible shift, and we should try to understand it. But I think it's not just the economic anxiety explanation that the Rust Belt deindustrialization theory would suggest. It's also status anxiety, which is tied in with racial anxiety, about um, you know, a loss in the sort of social pecking order in the face of growing multiculturalism and diversity. And that's why Make America Great Again is actually an incredibly effective slogan at getting folks to support Donald Trump. But what we have seen over the last few years is that within white Americans specifically, there's been a realignment. And that's along lines of this sort of anxiety that I was talking about, which has economic and racial components. But it's also quite a lot along educational lines lines as well. And one thing that I think about is Charles Murray, who's this controversial social scientist, wrote a book called Coming Apart, which was a sociological examination of white America. And he contrasts throughout the book, these two places that stands for sort of prosperous, educated white America, and not so prosperous white America. And one of those places is Belmont, the other is Fishtown, which is a sort of working class neighborhood in Philadelphia, which is now gentrifying and has excellent coffee shops so it's slightly out of date but what he finds is essentially that dislocations like family separation like unemployment all of these things have exploded among whites who don't have college degrees and their cultural affectations have also shifted a lot so within white america those who are open to new experiences these sort of broad psychological characteristics you know you've seen movement away from from those things like if i ask you you know The polling question of how often do you eat sushi in the last year is actually a fairly good uh, uh, way of sorting Democrats from Republicans among, among white people.
1: I didn't know about that sushi polling question, but it makes absolute sense given... It's a very good question. It is a good question, given how upscale white Democrats are broadly. And of course, we're generalizing, but that's an observation that is backed by polling data and how working class whites have continued to move towards the Republican Party.
3: Yeah, I think one reason for that is both declining membership of the white working class in unions and declining valence of unions as a predictor of voting Democratic. There is some research done by Strikewave, which is a pro-union organization in October 2020, which showed that union members are now more likely to consider themselves strong Republicans than strong Democrats. And I suspect there are a lot of factors at play there. I'm reading right now for a future article T.H. White's book on the Kennedy-Nixon race in 1960. And it's really striking that at that time, unions were the left flank of the Democrats' coalition, right, in the amount of attention that had to be paid to courting Walter Reuter and other union leaders. I suspect that union members are now the right flank of the Democrats' coalition, to the extent they're in it at all. And that suggests, as Idris did with the sushi question, that the Democrats are much more sort of culturally out of step with working class voters, especially white working class voters, but really all working class voters, as you saw in the 2020 race when Donald Trump picked up working class votes from from all races. I think it's important on this podcast that we own our political
1: prize. So I have to ask, are you two enthusiastic sushi eaters? (laughs) Semi-enthusiastic, yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. We're three for three in that case. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to venture into the Philadelphia suburbs to see what's going on there.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort
1: Pennsylvanians sometimes say that politically their state is NYC on either side and Kentucky in between, and elections are fought in the places where they meet. Our correspondent Stevie Hertz went to the Philly suburbs last week to see how those all-important voters are feeling ahead of the November election and hear the ideas that activists think will win their votes.
0: Montgomery County reaches from the edge of Philadelphia through the sprawling city suburbs to the start of rural Pennsylvania. It's packed with the kind of voters that now make up the Democratic base. There are urban pockets, like Nas Town, and half of adults here have at least a bachelor's degree, well more than the national rate. 82% of people voted here in 2020, and voters are keen to turn out for candidates, if candidates can reach them. — Hey, ladies. Hi,
6: Christian. — Nice nice to, to nice to meet you. — Christian
0: Nascimento is a Republican politician, running That's to replace Madeleine Dean in Congress, here, representing Pennsylvania's 4th District. — Yeah, um, should we go for a drive? — Sure, that'd be great. — Yeah. Driving around Plymouth Meeting and Lafayette Hill in Williams is pretty standard suburbia, not so sparse that there aren't buses humming past but not so dense that you can't spot deer, uh, groundhogs, and chipmunks corn trotting corn along corn the side corn. of the road.
6: And this was all farmland when oh, I was wow. growing up. Yeah, this was all corn.
0: And now it's now it's lots of like pretty medium-sized single-family homes not, being lots built.
6: Of, um, lots of development happening. I mean, the population growth is, has been kind of extraordinary.
0: When you think about kind of the issues facing the communities here, yeah. um, what are the big things that jump out to you?
6: Yeah, the economy is really kind of top of mind for everyone. Because it's hitting them from all angles, right? They go to the grocery store, and it's more expensive. You know, gas is obviously more expensive. In
0: recent presidential elections, Montgomery County has been getting darker and darker blue. In 2012, Barack Obama won the county by about 60,000 votes. In 2016, Hillary Clinton got it by 93,000. And then in 2020, for Joe Biden, it was 130,000. Which... Does pose a uh, challenge for Mr. Nascimento.
6: I certainly understand the math, the equation, but I think I could win just because I think that part of the the results in 2020 were really a referendum on on Trump at the end of the day. And Trump's off the ballot, and then I think that there are people in this district, on a lot of them, and I think they're looking for change. I think they're looking for someone that's really going to come and put a you know, kind of a classic common sense perspective on.
0: Because although Montgomery County goes blue at the top of the ticket, voters are happy to split their ballot. In the first congressional district, which is more rural but does include a sliver of Montgomery County, Republican Brian Fitzpatrick won re-election in 2020 by 13 points. It was one of the few seats in the country where the presidential race and the House race went separate ways. So a moderate Republican could be popular here. And I have a couple quickfire questions. Sure. Who won the 2020 election? Joe Biden. Who won Pennsylvania in the 2020 election? Joe Biden. Would you support Donald Trump if he ran for president in 2024? No. If you were elected and a national abortion ban came before the House of Representatives, would you vote in favor?
6: So I, I'm pro-life. I do believe in exceptions for uh, life of the mother, for rape and incest. I do not believe in late-term abortion. So I think those are kind of my guideposts. And from there, I'd have to see what the, what the rest of the bill looked like.
4: Ask them to vote, because November 8, 2022, all depends on you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> over in Nastown, the Montgomery County seat, progressive activists gather at a craft brewery over pizza and garlic bread. It's a mixer for young Democrats, many of them so young that they can't drink the American pale ales on tap. And so kind of from your perspective, has has election season begun? Are you out there knocking on the doors? It already started.
4: It already started? It already started. It yeah. started a couple months ago.
0: Richard Bates is one of the organisers of the event. He sits on Niles Town's me, municipal council.
4: My constituents actually don't talk to me about what's going on nationally. They talk about what's happening in their backyard. So for me, it's a lot of small neighbour complaints of noise and grass, stuff like that. But for nationally-wise, national-wise, um... The biggest thing is Roe v. Wade. That's the thing I hear about the most.
0: Next to Mr. Something Bates is about, Marissa Dell. Okay. She's 20 That's, and also good. sits on the Nastown school board. Yeah, I agree. Um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade is definitely a big issue. Do people like Fetterman? Is he like a popular candidate? Do people um, know who he is yeah, that I sort of thing. I have
4: an idea who he is, but I don't really know much about him yet, but I'll get there.
0: I would say that I think a lot of younger people are excited about Fetterman because he isn't the average politician. He comes out with his t-shirt and jeans, his tattoos. Yeah. In the evening at at Plymouth Community Park, locals play a sedate, if scrupulous, game of bocce. A tape measure is used multiple times. People stop to watch as they stroll past in the twilight. It's a gorgeous evening, but politically, people are feeling much more gloomy. For me, the inflation issue is big. And so I know it's super far out, but are there any of the candidates who've made an impression on you in a good way or a bad way?
5: Here I go. Yeah, I think it has to be Fetterman for me.
4: <laughs> I, I, I think everything about John Fetterman has kind of been a good vibe. And this is strange, but I like the way he looks. He does not look like a politician. And he... In some ways, looks like rednecky, like he could be from the other side, but he's not. You understand. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, there you go.
7: And I, I feel Fetterman will do a terrific job. He knows Pennsylvania. He's Good done. Collar.
5: God, I'm someone that's been a registered Democrat for years. They got to win me back.
0: How's that? <laughs> do you think he'll vote in November? No. How come? Because I feel like it's all fraud. I feel like votes have been changed before and they're not listening to what we want, they choose to ignore us. With about a hundred days to go until polls open, the election isn't front of mind here yet. But a sense of frustration, of angst with how the country is going, is. A lot of people do say they'll still turn out, but because they always do, not because they're excited.
1: Idris, there was a lot in there, but one of the things that jumped out to me was the voter who said that she wasn't going to vote, and one of the reasons she wasn't going to vote is because there was so much fraud. It just shows how kind of cannibalizing this idea of
2: elections being stolen can be, right? I mean, that can be a huge cell phone for Republicans to keep pushing this idea that elections are stolen. I mean, one, one thing that was amazing about Arizona is that you remember you know, one of the big cases for fraud was Trump was winning when I went to sleep. And then I woke up the next day, and he was losing, therefore, there was fraud. And Carrie Lake, who's probably going to be the gubernatorial nominee for the Republican Party, is fully on board with that. And what happened with her was, you know, the first batch of results came out, and she was down nine points. And because her supporters came out to the polls the day of, actually, what you saw was that the next day that had completely reversed, and now she's up by two. And there's going to be no, you know, fraud claim or, oh, that's really fishy or anything. It's completely outcome driven. And the issue is that, you know, elites know this. Elites within the Republican Party know that there isn't really systematic fraud, but they deploy it so, I think, cynically that it it trickles down to people. There was a stupid thing that was happening in Arizona where, like, members who were running for the GOP primary were telling their voters to not use the pens that were provided at the ballot locations and to steal the pen and replace it with their own pen and if an election official tried to take it from you they were committing election interference that's what the head of the arizona gop said at a speech oh man and then like you know these poll workers are, are working and they're running out of pens <laughs> and so they're like racing to get
1: more pe- it, it, insane insane wow John, one other thing that came up in Stevie's reporting from Pennsylvania is the salience of abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. I was in the camp that thought that this actually wouldn't be such a big deal in the midterms that it would get overshadowed by other things, by the economy. I'm beginning to think now that I was wrong, particularly looking at what happened with the ballot initiative in Kansas recently.
3: Yeah, I was in that camp too. I sort of assumed that all voters who felt strongly about abortion had sorted themselves into one political party or the other already. But the results in Kansas this week, where voters rejected an attempt to scrap a right to abortion in the state's constitution, and really not just the results but the turnout, including with support from heavily Trump districts, is making me rethink that position. The ruling and Republicans' attempts to pass laws after it really put the Democrats in a good position if they're able to capitalize on it. because. What Republicans seem to have done is caved to the rightmost flank, that is to politicians trying to enact abortion bans without exception. What this does is freeze the Democrats from having to respond to their leftmost flank and push for abortion to be legal at all times with no exceptions. They can just oppose a ban. And the pro-choice campaign in Kansas used very clever framing. They position themselves as opposing government mandates on health, which is super smart and helped lead to the result we saw in Kansas. And I think if Democrats can do that, obviously the election will be fought on more than just abortion, but if Democrats can position themselves as simply opposing these extreme bans, then I think they'll be in a very good place. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the Kansas result
2: was really striking. One thing that I have been thinking about is, you know, it went basically plus 18, I think for Democrats to harness the energy of abortion politics in November will be a bit trickier because you're not just voting on abortion, right? You're voting on a candidate. So Laura Kelly, the governor who's running in Kansas this November, is not going to win by 18, right? In some states, and, and Pennsylvania actually might be, might be impactful because their Democrats can make the case that Doug Mastriano is way too extreme because he supports a fetal heartbeat bill, which would um, not allow abortions past six weeks, which is, pretty close to an effective ban. It's good politics for Democrats, but I don't think that you're going to see Kansas-style margins pop up anywhere. Uh, It reminds me also one thing that I, for many years ago, I I went to Idaho where campaigners were trying to get a referendum to pass, and they did successfully, to expand Medicaid in their state, in a state that's really hostile to Obamacare, and that passed. And, you know, obviously a pro-Obamacare Democrat doesn't have a prayers chance of getting elected in Idaho, but the referendum did. So it's this interesting also reflection of the unique feature of American democracy where these referendums can come up even in conservative states.
1: Just on the salience of abortion in Pennsylvania, I was struck how Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee, the Stop the Steal guy, who we're all rather alarmed by, has changed his language when talking about abortion. I mean, if you look earlier in this year, in May, he described the law in America under Roe v. Wade as a science-denying genocide Uh, And since then, he's basically been saying, oh, we shouldn't talk about abortion. We should focus on the economy. And so I think if you can judge anything by the behavior of candidates in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, Republicans are hoping not to talk about abortion too much. John Idris just sticking with Pennsylvania for the last question. I've started to wonder about whether John Fetterman, despite his heart problems, might actually be really rather a good candidate and not just a good candidate for Pennsylvania. I mean, here's this guy who... Listen to Stevie's reporting. You had that registered Democrat saying, I think the Democratic Party needs to win me back and saying how much he likes Fetterman because he just appears to be one of them. You know, voters, white working class voters appear to see themselves in John Fetterman. John Fetterman also excites the kind of Bernie Sanders wing of the party because he supported Sanders in 2020. He was the mayor of an African-American, predominantly African-American town, Braddock in Pennsylvania. I just – he seems to have this kind of chameleon-like political appeal – to the different constituencies of the Democratic Party that are often in tension with one another. It's easy to look at these candidates from a distance and conclude that they're better than they actually are. And when you spend time with them, I haven't spent time with Fetterman yet. You know, you spend time with them and you think actually there's not so much there. But do you share my view that Fetterman really might actually be quite a good candidate or or do you think I'm wrong?
3: I think he's only chameleon-like from where we sit, right? I think there's a through line politically that connects disaffected white working class voters, disaffected African American voters, and the Sanders wing of the party. People who follow politics as we do talk a lot about how Democrats have to moderate and have to moderate away from their leftmost flank. And I think the image that comes up most often is that a moderate Democrat looks like Josh Gottheimer or Kirsten Sinema or, you know, like The Economist, frankly, sort of pro business, socially liberal. I think that's not the sort of candidate who will win back. Trump voters to the Democratic side. I think that these sorts of candidates who will do that look like John Fetterman or Jared Golden in Maine. In a sense, they sort of culturally working class, you know, Fetterman's hoodies, his effect, his demeanor. They are suspicious of free trade. They're often pro-gun. I think those are the sorts of candidates that can do quite well among those constituencies that you mentioned and can do quite well in rebuilding Democrats' brand in, in rural America.
2: If I can gently and gingerly pile on to our august employer, I think that the, you know, in the sort of economist ideal view of the world, you have voters and, you know, they, they study policy and they decide, you know, who's closest to me on, on, you know, matters of immigration and trade and tax policy. And then they, they pick the right one. And, you know, we know that Americans don't really live up to that ideal. There is a lot of vibes based politics and voting. And appearing to be normal matters a lot. And it actually is correlated with like moderate politics, but it it doesn't need to be like you can be quite progressive and and appear normal, which I think Fetterman is is inhabiting. Or you can be like quite right wing and also not talk weird. Like James Carville said, which is, you know, he's been a critic of, you know, the sort of progressive end of the party, but he's, he's critical of language that he memorably calls from the faculty lounge. You know, that that stuff just doesn't work. You can go to like the most elite schools in the country, like Ted Cruz or Ron DeSantis, and and still talk in a way that, that normal people feel like resonates with them. So, you know, it is this distinction between the, the rational voter and uh, the American voter.
1: Okay, Idris, before you shatter any more of my illusions, I think it's time to go to the quiz. The Economist wrote about Joe Biden's Pennsylvania birthplace in a 2012 article called The Sadness of Scranton. We wrote that the city has long been synonymous with industrial decline and that its financial woes were such that recently a mere $5,000 remained in the city's coffers. Question one, Biden is one of two presidents born in the Keystone State. Which 19th century president was the other?
3: Huh, that's a great question.
1: I feel like I should know that. Yeah, so should I. (laughs) It's typical that the one week, neither of you know the answer to the quiz question. Charlotte is on a beach in Greece. This is, this is really going to bug me. It's a great question. It's going to bother
3: me too. Is it? Is, is it uh, Millard Fillmore, my favorite obscure president? I'm going to guess Andrew. No, he's not Andrew Johnson. He was from Tennessee. Whatever. Andrew Johnson.
1: Um, it was neither, neither of those. It was, in fact, James Buchanan, the 15th president. He's also served as both a congressman and a senator for Pennsylvania. Question two, and I think this is a real good one. Buchanan was the only president never to do what? Get married. Live in the White House. Whoa. Idris, your answer was get married, and Fasman was never live in the White House.
2: Yeah. I I believe he was a lifelong bachelor, yes. Speculated as possibly
1: the only gay president America's ever had. Is the right answer. He's the only president never to have got married. Well done. So apparently his niece, who was called Harriet Lane, acted as the first lady or hostess at the White House while James Buchanan was president. And congratulations, Idris. That's a solid bit of trivia right there. Thanks. Okay. well, Idris, have fun at CPAC in Dallas. Thanks so much. John, have a great time in Florida. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble with research by Milton Vargas. Sound mixing was by James Stickland. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and review. You can now explore our shiny new homepage at economist.com slash ChecksPod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. And all those letters come to us. We enjoy them. So keep them coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.